All right, Cutlass leaders, welcome back to another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. Today, we're going to keep diving into this exploration of leadership, value, and belief systems, how that shapes your attitude, not just about the world around you, but particularly about your organization, the people that work there, your mission, and how that frames how people respond to you, frankly, and then how that in turn shapes what you say and do as a leader. With me today to go over the next topic, I've got Mark Hurricane Halliburton. He is the Director of Military and Veteran Programs and the Marketing Director at Your Next Mission and an American Freedom Foundation. He's also a U.S. Army veteran. Mark has a Bachelor's of Business Administration and Political Science through Excelsior College. So like me, he is an Excelsior alum. And he also has a Bachelor of Science in Political Science Government from Purdue University Global. And I met Mark this year at the Non-Commissioned Officers Association Annual Conference. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Cutlass Podcast. How are things going for you? Things are great. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. So you and I met, you know, it's been a few months since we've seen each other in person, but we've been connected on the phone, exchanging some ideas back and forth. So first, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing uh, these days? Man, I appreciate that. We always have to have purposeful occupation and or service that that kind of hits us in the fields and gives us a reason why that we continue to serve. And currently, that purpose is, you know, being the director of military programs and director of marketing for American Freedom Foundation and Your Next Mission. And well, both of them are nonprofit. And our goal is to provide resources and opportunities for transitioning service members, family members, military spouses, and veterans to get into the workforce and to have that communication from our strategic level leaders and things that are there for veterans and transitioning service members and families that are not necessarily tangible or reachable. And our goal and our mission is to make these things reachable for our audience, which is the veterans, transitioning service members and families. And so with that, you know, I'm using my skills and my purpose and my passion to get after getting this information and opportunities to that population. Awesome. So very rewarding work. Today, we're going to talk getting into values and belief systems, but other attributes such as passion and purpose matter as well. So I'm glad you brought those up. And uh, thanks again for taking some time to join me. You know, this week, we lost a huge influential leader, not just for our country, but for our military. General Colin Powell passed away this week. So like many, I saw articles, posts favorably speaking about him and the influence that he had on people. And even if many people met him personally just for a small period of time, you know, perhaps you got to see him if you were on active duty or hear him speak. But he was a prolific writer. He wrote several books and he really stepped off with these his 13 rules of leadership. So I thought today, Mark, you and I would cover down on those. I think you've heard of them. These are a great value and belief system that leaders could consider because really, as a leader, your attitude really shapes the attitude of your team. So you ready to get into these? Absolutely. I'm absolutely. I'm so ready. Okay. Well, first, did you get to ever more personally meet Colin Powell? I did. The first time I met Colin Powell was at a troop clinic at Fort Myer, Virginia, where he used to come, you know, be health screening. And I was sitting next to him, getting my annual physical checkup. And up walks Colin Powell, and he sits down next to me just like every other American, no big deal, and looked at me and said, like, good morning. And I almost fell out of my chair that I'm sitting next to the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, former Secretary of State, former soldier. and like no big deal. And that was probably one of the most awesome experiences that I've ever experienced in my life. It was pretty cool. 
Yeah, and that humility resonates as one of the qualities that people admired about him. Rule one and two, I'm going to kind of combine here. So rule one was, it ain't as bad as you think. It'll look better in the morning. And rule two was, get mad, then get over it. So what's Mark's take on this? What's been your experience with this? And what advice do you offer on those two? And what do you think about them? It ties to emotional response. When you see something bad that happens, the first thing that comes to you is your emotional response to it, understanding what had happened. And by looking better in the morning is means that you've become in control of your emotion and understanding this bad as you think. For instance, it's a couple months ago, had an, my wife had an accident in my vehicle and initially emotional response will to be get angry. You know, this is something that you cherish as your vehicle and get mad. But then once you walk away, you sleep on it, you realize that the most important thing in life is not your vehicle, is that your wife and son walked away and nothing happened. Right. And see, that's where your emotional intelligence is attributed to understanding your emotions, which is attributed to the situation at hand. And, and that's what I think, in my opinion, that's what he is, is essentially saying. Yeah. So I think it comes down to how you perceive outcomes about what's going to happen, how you perceive, and, and you know that, your values and beliefs about stuff. So clearly, Colin Powell's value and belief system here was shaped about the experiences he had in the world, the people that brought him up, the people that shaped and, and modeled him, and how he perceived the world uh, and the outcomes that were out there, or the outcomes that he shaped himself. I think sometimes when you're in that mindset, you start to, just as a human... You naturally go to these fears, you think irrationally, and you start to perceive outcomes that may be unknown. So I think there's some time overnight that helps you really get those unknowns back into knowns a bit. You probably have some time to talk to people, and it gives you some time to settle and let all that primal response settle. And then the get mad, get over it, what I've come to learn is anger is a secondary emotion. So if you're feeling angry about something... There's another emotion below that that's actually driving that. It's either you're embarrassed, you're frustrated, you're scared. Those are the primary emotions that drive anger as an initial response, and it's a defensive response. So, and anger's okay. You know what I mean? Um, I've even discussed on other podcasts. Occasionally, it's okay to let people see that you're frustrated, upset, and mad. You can't let that drive everything, but I think you let it settle. You come back. You get a new perspective, you talk to people, and then you reset. And more importantly, as a leader, you communicate to the team what you're actually feeling now. What do you think about that? I agree. And and the key word you said was primal. I think that's a powerful word. Primal is a powerful word because it gets out to the it gets out to the essence of, you know, the beginning. I I hear the word immaturity, I hear the word underdeveloped, raw. And I think that as you become more mature, as you become more and more experienced and understanding your emotions, it, there's a separation between, you know, experience and those primal instincts. So I, I think you, you were spot on. And as leaders mature, you start to realize, like, perhaps as a young leader, you know, I grew up in the Navy nuclear power program. I had a perspective of, like, if I fail to do a procedure the right way or something bad goes on, we're going to have a critique. I had this fear, like, oh, I'm going to lose my career and stuff. And then over time, I got to learn, like, those outcomes aren't as bad as I think they're going to be. Maybe someone had that experience before, and I gave too much credit to that person's experience and perspective. And sometimes you just have to, with time, mature and learn through yourself that, okay, the reason why we do critiques and things like that is it's an opportunity for the organization to learn. It's not necessarily targeted towards me kind of thing. So again, I think with time, even as a parent, 
when I was a younger parent, I didn't have a lot of patience. I got angry quick. And then as I got older, I just found that I was more patient. I think that just comes with time. All right. So his third rule was, is all about ego, right? And this is so important and, and avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it. This reminds me of that Simon Sinek coffee cup discussion. I don't know if you've heard that one before. All you are is a coffee cup and don't get tied up in the perks and things that go with the position and so much that it defines your value as a leader. What's been your uh, personal experience with how you manage ego and position? Because you were a command sergeant major. I was. You know, ego is tied to it's about you. And understanding when it's about you, one of the traits that comes with that is ego. If you have the understanding of servant leadership, you know, it's almost the anti, it's, the, it's like an antivirus to ego, servitude. And if you truly understand service, ego cannot be a part of leadership. It's, it's, it's almost like polar opposites. And, and so I had to understand that. Now, growing up early as a young, hungry senior NCO, you try to define who you are as opposed to your service to others define you. And that comes with maturity. It comes with development. And what I've noticed is most senior NCOs, to include junior and up-to-coming officers, you know, I'm not going to separate the two. Yep. You know, they find themselves, you know, looking to define who they are. And then when they become a little bit older, a little bit more mature, they realize that, you know, serving others can put them in a position of more influence Because it opens up their aperture to help more because they understand the reason what they're doing is serving others, not necessarily serving themselves. And so that's why I believe that ego is attributed to it's about you. And so when your ego falls as a servant, you you can't fall as a servant because you own the ground in the first place. Right. You know, you can't fall. And so the only place down as a servant to go is nowhere. Because you are lifting people up. But when you are though that the person being lifted up and using your ego that's carrying you, when it collapses, so do you. And now you're on the ground with the servants who have never risen up because they believe that the most important thing is to be up underneath people serving them. That's that's my take on it. Okay. And then position doesn't define everything, right? Um, I've talked about this on several episodes when I get into power bases. So Your first power base in a position is your positional authority. And with that comes authority, responsibility, access to people, the ability to give direction, give orders, make decisions, right? So, okay, that's important, but it's not everything. If you want to connect and get buy-in, now you got to rely on those personal behaviors, right? Your personal power, your knowledge base, those things that make you human to people, that make people think you're credible, that they can trust you, and then they buy in. And to your point, being servant leader, coming from that position of humility is important. I think a couple things here. I don't think it means like – I'm sure that Colin or Colin Powell had valued himself, right? He had great personal value and I think he was a confident leader. And I think those are two attributes leaders should have. You should value yourself and your worth and your skill sets and your confidence. But you got to balance that with getting arrogant or getting it tied to, hey, all those perks that come with those positions as you rise up, they're not about you. Those perks are usually tools, and it's really about the position 
that you're filling, not the person in the position. So I've always thought about if you get an office, if you get a company car, if you get a you know an assistant or a secretary, that's not all about because you're special. Those are tools that enable you to execute the responsibilities of the position. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, as I was reading these top 13 things or things that Colin Powell said, there are so many thoughts that come to mind. And, and to believe it or not, as you know, these 13 things are inextricably linked. Some they, they all are. Yes. You know, because as you continue to converse, one thing feeds directly to another thing. It's like this woven web of great advice. And I, I look at this and, and I read number three, but then I go back to look at number four. It can be done. And then it goes back to number one. And, and I ask myself is, you know, to me, this is pure experience. See, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Yep. You know, knowledge is, is seeking the understanding through traditional parochial education and, and becoming smart. Wisdom is learning from people who made the mistakes and not doing those. That's the difference between the two. And to me, this is wisdom. Well, knowledge meets wisdom. These are all of the things that I believe that he has happened, has done throughout his life and his career. And now he's able to sit back and provide these some mistakes, some failures, some successes and be able to provide you, you know, tangible or, or you know, experienced data that has happened to him and be able to speak on these specifically. And that's why they're all linked, because this is things that he has you know, either failed or succeeded in throughout his career. I think it's mental reps and sets, right, of experiences. To your point about number four, like, what do you think shapes a it-can-be-done mindset or what shapes a it-can't-be-done mindset? I, I, I believe in optimism and pessimism. As a senior SEO, I used to lead with the mindset, don't tell me I can't do it. Tell me if I do it, what will happen and what is the risk that I'm assuming by doing it? And by having that mentality, you understand the things that you're assuming and the, the risk that you're assuming because of the decision in which you made. If you say it, anything can be done, but there's risks and effects that are associated with deciding to do anything. You know, if I say, well, client, okay, I can say, uh, uh, you, you have a person with a, a handicap or a person with an impediment or a person with a, you know, a disability, and you tell them that you can't climb a mountain. Or you can say you can climb a mountain, but these are the things that you will need to ensure it can be done. It, it's, it's about perspective. Yep. How you see the world. 100% about perspective. And it's important for the leader to have this right, right? Because they've been for whatever reason, a variety of ex experiences either shapes you in a, it could be in a position, it could be in an organization. I think over time, again, how those, how you interact with the world and how things happen to you or how you let things happen and shape your mindset creates that in you. And then what's important is like, I think it's important. It can be done because as a leader, you are shaping the attitude of your team, right? And you got to show them it can be done. And if you don't believe it fully, it's not going to happen. Completely, completely agree. Number five was be careful what you choose. You might actually get it. Have you ever chosen something or made a decision and you got it and then it didn't turn out quite what you thought? I mean, I think that's we, we do that every day. I, I, again, this comes with experience. I think the perspective from a, 
a 22-year-old and the perspective of a 52-year-old, you know, the 22-year-old, they're they're full of vigor, they're full of drive, they're full of, but then you have the 52-year-old who's seen things and done things and says, you know what, uh, be careful what you ask for. And there's a reason for that because they've stood the test of time and understood that I've asked for this and this is what I've got. But see, as a 22-year-old, sometimes no, no matter what you tell, you, you can't tell a 22-year-old, hey, be careful what you ask for or be careful what you choose because they want to go, they want to go out and uh, conquer the world. Yep. That, it, it's just in them. And as they get older, experiences kind of temper that drive and that vigor. And, you know, that's where physiology kicks in as well. But it, it's, it's OK. But I, I think that having all of these having all this wisdom is impossible because experience is a is a precursor to wisdom. Your parents can tell you all of these things. Right. As a 10, 12, 13, 15, 18 year old, you can have all these 13 things. Your parents tell you don't do this. But you're still going to do it, even though you were told not to do it. You know, don't touch the hot stove. But experience of getting burned is going to prevent you from touching the stove, not because your mother told you to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I see it in the lens of when, you know, for purpose, I guess, of this podcast, I would start saying, like, when people start seeking positions of responsibility and authority or career paths. So you see the position, you see the perk, and you see the ability to get out in front of people and influence them. And what you f perhaps don't see is, like, the impact on your personal life. That with that increased responsibility comes personal, quote unquote, rights to certain things start to go down, right? So as you move up, what you think are rights to do this or your right to, frankly, bitch and complain in front of people goes away, right? And there's there's certain trade-offs for that responsibility and authority you get. And I think some people don't think about that. So my advice on top of this would be when it comes to choosing a new job, a position, a career path, make sure you're reaching out to mentors and people in those jobs doing it, who can tell you, all right, that's the veneer that you're seeing, but have you considered A, B, and C? Because here's some of the realities people don't understand about this. Hey, that you break up a good point. You know, say for instance, and we were talking about this the other day, you know, your goal, you choose to seek the path of becoming a senior, a command senior enlisted leader, pick your favorite service. Yep. Now, you, your influence on the service men and women in your charge is going to be exponential. You're going to have influence beyond. However, your decision and words and daily or recreational activities are going to be limited because of the path in which you chose. So yes, you're going to have the influence over service members, but you're going to be minimized in what you can say. What you can say before you had that position is going to be completely different than what you can say after you had that position. Be careful. And, and you went in and said, it, it's like, you know, now you have this microscopic views from everybody because of this, the position which you chose to do. And if that's what you chose to do, fine. But understanding there's a there's a trade-off. And, and I think you, you said it best. Okay. Next two get into decision-making. So one is don't let us adverse facts stand in the way of a good decision. That's rule number six. So this is in the business of hard decision-making, right? So I, th I see where this gets into, I don't know if you've heard it put this way, but being able to make the right but hard decision versus the wrong but easy decision. I have. I I I'll put it to like this. As a leader, sometimes you can make the right decision at the wrong time. And this is an example I, I would use. There was a first sergeant who had a heightened weight screening exercise for his organization. And you had a soldier who taped over by 1% in the army, you know, 
whether you're a half a percent or whatever, if you're over, you're over. Yep. And of course, they, they, they would have to be flagged. Well, come to find out uh, for the last three weeks, uh, his wife left the soldier his spouse left him three weeks ago and he was going through a tough time. No one knew this. No one knew this. And so they went to the service members quarters and just found alcohol and just it looked like a pig stop. But he was very depressed and he just he was going through a lot of things. Now, the right thing to do if the soldier failed and taped over will be to flag that soldier. Right. Preventing him being promoted or receiving any awards. But is really that the right thing to do at that time and understanding the impacts of a soldier who is going through depression, who is suffering from the the loot, his spouse moving on and taking their entire family away and leaving him in that position. And sometimes, you know, that can have adverse effects on that person, even though you're trying to do the right thing. And that stuck out to me. And that's where sometimes making the right decision at the wrong time needs to un- leaders need to understand that just because it right doesn't mean there's there's a time and place to do the right thing. And sometimes it could be at the wrong time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, obviously, at the levels that Colin Powell is making decisions, I mean, you're talking the national levels of power. He probably got all kinds of as a good informed decision maker should get. You get all kinds of perspectives from the team. He probably parsed that out. But I think you just got to understand, or it may not have been on the facts that are on the on the ground, because um, some of those facts that you get and some of that information is not true. So being able to kind of consider through that. But on the other end, the adverse outcomes that could, quote unquote, come from your decision, the right decision may mean that it puts people in a hard spot or makes them have to do things they don't necessarily want to do, but that they need to do to achieve the objectives. I think the, that's what it gets into. Number seven is you can't make someone else's choices. You shouldn't let someone else make yours. What are your thoughts? Oh, man. I think it's relational with the person. Sometimes you can care too much. And anything of too much isn't good. And you want to care so much that you want to choose and make their decisions because you want to prevent them, who you care about, prevent them from making mistakes. I think that's the underlying root to that statement. Okay. Is you can't make someone else's choices because, well, one, you don't want to make the mistakes or two, that their actions are related to your success. Right. And so you want to make sure that they as a leader, that they make choices that benefit you. So you can either there's two ways to look at it. I think the selfish person is I want to make choices for you so you don't screw me over. But as a very empathetic or understanding and caring person, you want to make choices for them so they don't make mistakes that put them in a bad place yeah so it's, it's two perspectives to look at that statement and then he, then vice versa you shouldn't let someone else make yours and i guess that is you know associated with what level are you the subordinate or are you the leader and i think they're just flipped and as a person it, it depends on where you are in the realm of decision making by someone making decisions for you so, and some decisions that they're going to make for you regardless especially in the service you know when you have your strict obedience to orders if someone's going to tell you to eat, that's not negotiable. You're yeah. going to eat at this time. And so s- some of these, you know, are, are, are kind of, yeah, you shouldn't do it, but some of them are non-negotiable. You have to in the in the in the preservation of good order and discipline. 
uh, yeah, that, no, that's my perspective on that first statement. Okay. Yeah, I think, uh, again, to your point, like when you have to make decisions about something, obviously you seek counsel from a variety of people. And this could be not just in a leadership position or management position. This could be as a parent, a brother or sister. Some people will start to really pressure because their value and belief system about it, their experience is different. Their whole decision-making matrix is different than yours. Take the perspective on but don't let it become their decision, right? Own your decision. If your heart's telling you to go a certain way, you do it, you own it, and you support your decision and move on. I think that's an important thing. All right, number eight gets into something we're both familiar with in the military. Check small things or what I would call or we would call, right, at least in the Navy, attention to detail. Is that an Army term? Absolutely. Okay. And this matters for everything. So one thing I noticed about you when I first met you was your appearance, right? Your dress. You had a lot of attention to detail. Why does this matter and resonate with you so much? Attention to small things prevent big things from happening. And and, and in a perfect example, you know, as a drill sergeant, as, as a small unit leader uh, responsible for training civilians and the soldiers, you know, we did every day we did weapons count. Every day. And one of my drill sergeants... Who, were, who was very new to the organization as a leader, dealing with, you know, some, uh, young trainees. My direction was him, do weapons count, count weapons every day. Every time you move, count weapons. And he disagreed with that decision. He's like, well, this is not a big deal. I can see the weapons were here. Well, one day there was a, a weapon that was missing. And the small unit leader or drill sergeant was very, he was worried. He's like, oh, my goodness, this is a weapons missing. So he come to me and say, hey, we have a weapon missing. And he didn't have a weapon missing because I took the weapon because it was unsecure. But the teaching point was, is that this is why you do small things to prevent big things such as this and pay attention to the small things. And he walked away. and He's like, you know what? I completely understand the point because the attention to small things preventing big things such as losing a weapon, which is catastrophic. And that was a great teaching point. Yeah, absolutely. And in the world I grew up, again, Navy nuclear power program is a big deal. One turn of the switch the wrong way, doing maintenance and not securing equipment back in its original condition. I mean, these can end up, you know, you get into risk management, right? There's a model called the Swiss cheese model where all these kind of factors start to line up, right? So one missed thing can be prevented by another control or backup, but Two missed things put you more at risk. Three missed things. So all this attention to detail of small things, those small things add up in the aggregate. And then next thing you know, in that Swiss cheese model, the holes line up. And then next thing you know, you got a major incident, right? An aircraft crashes, nuclear power plants you know, or nuclear reactors can melt down, organizational missions start to fail, all those kind of things. So people, I think, don't value that individual decision and those kind of details and then frankly, you know, when it comes to personal appearance and things like that, it's your personal reputation that you're reflecting, right? What people see, they're making value judgments uh, about you based on how well you're put together, if you're on time, right? Little things like that. And you're right. But you also think that those who have a lot to lose and inherit significant responsibility, pay attention to the small things. But those who are not ultimately accountable or responsible for what's right or wrong with an organization kind of necessarily doesn't pay attention to small things, you know, because they're not ultimately responsible. And so their attention to detail sometimes wanes. But that's where, as a leader, you have to focus on those employees, service members, soldiers, sailors or whatever within an organization to say, you know what, 
this is why, because those are teachable moments, because young soldiers become general officers. You know, young soldiers become senior NCOs. And so that's why it's important to teach a small thing at that level so they can grow and understand at every level, you know, the larger and more inherent responsibilities in which you assume, the smaller the detail you need to pay attention to. Because it feeds a larger mindset. This was that whole broken window theory up in New York City when they started going after crime, right? They started with the lower level crimes. The success with those things now feeds an attitude, right? And it erodes ownership of people and citizens, and it just gets at broader stuff. As a leader, one other point I'll make here is checking small things is something like you said, right? Just a quote unquote small thing is when you sit down next person, just giving them a good morning, looking them in the eye, those kind of personal greetings, all that stuff matters for running a great organization. Absolutely. So he gets a nuts one. Share credit. Uh, so let's flip this. So why why would leaders or managers not want to share credit? Goes back into number three, ego. Yep. Period. Like we said before, these are all linked, but it's ego. Is because credit few ego has to have a source, and the source of ego is you and credit and all things you. And so by taking credit, it is counterintuitive to servant leadership. You're not there to serve others, you're self-serving. And by sharing credit, you encourage others that they're, you know, it's you don't define your your ability to serve. It's the people in which you serve define you as a servant leader. If you have to call yourself a servant leader, you're not a servant leader. Right. You don't earn that title. It's given to you. By people giving you that title and giving you that credit, you don't have to take it. And by sharing the credit and constantly telling people it's, this is yours. And finally, sometimes, I don't know if you've seen it, but you get you get some subordinates that will put you in a corner and force you to share the credit with them because you never take the credit of what you allow them to do. Yeah. Right. And, and I've had that so much is I feel awkward and any servant leader should feel awkward taking credit. It should feel funny taking credit because it's not why you do it. Right. And I just encourage the listeners. I did an episode of Cutlass Podcast on um, using reward power and praise and the power of that. I think that gets at this. So all my thoughts will be in that episode. So go check that one out. Uh, number 10 is remain calm and be kind. I think this ties into number two, get mad, then get over it. Why is this so important? Remain calm goes back to emotional stability. It's tied to number six, letting it stand in the way of a good decision. It's not as bad as you think. Emotions will never change the situation, right? It will never change. If something bad happens, your response to it is not going to make it better. It happens. If you lose a service member, if something catastrophic happened within an organization, your emotional response is not going to make the situation better. It shows your lack of maturity and it shows your inexperience. As, as a leader, remaining calm encourages the thought-provoking ideas and ways to fix the situation that has happened as opposed to catering to your emotions. See, when people respond, they're they're not focused on fixing what happened. They're focused on calming you down. Yeah, And that's taking away the energy, focused at fixing the situation as opposed to saying, you know what, hey, we, we need to fix the situation as opposed to we need to calm the boss down. Yeah. That, that, and to me, that's why remaining calm and being kind can focus your team in which you lead on the issue at hand and not you. 
It's how you receive unpopular news, right? So I want my people to be able to deliver bad news to me, right? But if I don't receive it in a calm, professional way, they're not going to bring it, right? And then uh, then little things don't get brought to your attention, right? Um, big things don't get brought to your attention. Your team steps away, quote unquote, emotionally from you. It's not good for you. It's not good for organizational dis- decision making. And then frankly, you know, the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. People respond to that. Doesn't mean you can't be as the next one says, have a vision and be demanding. It doesn't mean you can't be demanding on your people, but you can be professional and courteous at the same time. So, And with that, number 11 is have a vision and be demanding. That vision is, and that sense of being demanding is, it's not being an asshole, frankly. It's about having a vision and knowing the potential your organization and people could have and the things they could achieve. And then challenging them to be their fullest self, both organizationally and personally. What do you think? In order to challenge someone on a vision, the vision needs to be a shared vision. When a a leader creates a vision and you have an individual within an organization that is operating outside the vision, the first thing people say is are the employees or soldiers or service members, well, that's not within what is within the boss's vision. That's problematic because what should be said is that's not within our vision, because if it, if you don't believe in the vision, then it's about the boss. The boss said this. Then you have that reverent power. Right. Yep. It's not a, you, you're not taking ownership. And so a vision needs to be shared and created by the organization, not by the commander, not by the CEO, not by the boss, but by the company. So you can believe in something because you have created it. Now you have accountability and responsibility of the vision and now leaders can be demanding because you help create the vision and i think that's a missing focal point when creating a vision is that the boss and the seniors create this vision but the junior level employees or service members don't have buy-in so when something goes awry they says well, why did this person do this or why don't they have these shared core beliefs is because they wasn't involved in the process of the creation of the vision, seeing it come to fruition. That's my thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And when I consult with teams and when I've facilitated when I was on active duty, I always get into, we start with mission and vision, right? Okay, let's put the mission and vision up there. And I want to see, like, do you even connect with this? How does this mission and vision make you feel? What is your role in it? Right. So I'm, I'm completely aligned with that. Having a vision, but having a shared vision with people that they can buy into and they're excited and challenged by, and then you can come by with that demanding sense. Again, I think it's more like a balance between focus on results and high standards and making sure that you don't drive your people too hard, right? So you can press. And one of my things I'd always tell people is like, hey, I'm going to demand, I'm going to give you responsibility. I'm going to give you authority until you tell me stop. I've watched you. I know you have the capability. I, I do the situational leader thing. Um, assess your competence, your character, and you can do these things. I'm never going to pile on more than I think you can handle, but I'm going to keep filling that plate up or I'm going to, you know, incrementally helping you raise standards of achievement, but I'm not going to let you hurt yourself as as well. So, And that is directly correlated to types of power as well, you know, whether it be positional or personal power. And having positional power, you know, you can, you're that demanding person that says you need to do this X, Y, and Z. But having that personal power, I can still demand and get the same results, but having a relationship to where that you see me coming and you know that a standard is like 
instead of me saying fix your boots, the first thing the sailors would do is look at themselves, right? Yep. Because you're coming. Yep. And, and that's because they have personal power. They don't want to disappoint you. So the first thing they do is look at themselves to make sure they're presentable as opposed to you coming in screaming and saying, hey, your guys are all tore up. You're jacked up. They reflect in themselves. And to me, that's when you know they share and understand the vision. Absolutely. And I think there's another mantra I've heard. I've used it, right? Be a firm and fair leader. So I can be firm, which I quote unquote is demanding, right? Here's the standards. We're professionals in the profession of arms or whatever trade or profession we're in. We all share high standards. We all understand why those standards are in place. Uh, in many cases, if you don't see people adhering to the standards because you haven't effectively communicated and educated on why those things are so important. But at the same time, there's a sense of fairness, right? Knowing your balance, knowing your people and being able to keep them from taking on too much or just being an asshole. All right. Number 12 was don't take counsel of your fears or naysayers. I think that gets into decision making. We touched on that a bit about, hey, people are going to bring you facts. They're going to bring you worst case scenarios or they're going to doubt outcomes. Again, I think it gets into what's in your heart. What's your personal experience telling you? What's that gut telling you about the decision and the right thing to do? And then your ability to achieve those things. I think there's times when you just got to have faith in yourself and your decision making and not take counsel of those things. But ultimately, number 13, perpetual op optimism is a force multiplier. And I think that comes down to that is a core value of Colin Powell that I see. Optimism is weaved all through this. What's your thoughts on that? I agree. And I think if all 12 things were the silk to weave this web, I think number 13 and optimism is the spider itself. I think optimism is what woke all of this together. It is the, the linchpin or Whatever buzz phrase you want is optimism. No one wants to be around a pessimistic person. No one wants to work for someone who always seeking a negative. You, you hear the phrase, well, I, I want to find the weak spots or the things that are not as strong. I'll say that word as strong as everything else to kind of, you know, strengthen a person. Well, that's just being a negative. Or you can identify the strengths of someone and allow them to understand what's not as strong, because I don't want to use the word weak, what's not as strong. And they, that way they have self-acknowledgement. And to me, that's, that comes with optimism. And having optimism, I think, is important. Yes. You know, pessimism is a negative thing. I am a fan of realism, though, being able to go out and assess the world yeah. and understand the reality of how things are and the reality of the world around you and the situation is important. But the optimism is the positive attitude with how you can deal with that reality. Pessimism would be just that resignation to you can't do anything. And I just personally think that if you take time to huddle your team and look around you, there is a solution. There is a positive way to address things if you're willing to do it. And as a leader with a team watching you, right, they're watching this. And if you're always pessimistic, number one, that team might see the answer. And if you don't, if you're not even tapping into the team's opportunity to solve that problem, they're just going to move away, right? They're going to give up. They're like, I'm out. Some case, they're going to leave, right? They're going to go find a team and an employer who is optimistic and who has a vision like we talked about earlier. So, all right, Mark, this has been really good. I've enjoyed this discussion back and forth. Any last thoughts you want to offer here? I do. We use the image of half full, half empty to define pessimism and optimism, right? Yep. That's that's what we do. And I like your word realism. The fact of the matter is, is it's not whether the glass is half empty 
you know, which is pessimistic or is half full, which is optimistic, is the fact that we have water in the first place. Yeah. Right. To me, that's the realism. It's not necessarily if it's half empty or half full. Is what do we do with what we have? Right. You can have everything and do nothing with it or have nothing and do everything with it. It's about perspective. And to me, I think understanding that you have water, whether it's half or almost gone or almost full, you have water. What do you do with it? And to me, that is the realism and the type of understanding the perspective uh, people need to have over. Yeah, awesome. And again, it's been my experience, right? If you give them that full glass, usually people take that for granted. You give them a half or close to empty glass, you really unleash innovation, right? When people don't have the resources they need to achieve they will start to think and find solutions. So instead, of, it's again, how you look at that half glass and how it provides opportunity for you and your team. So, all right, my guest today has been Mark Hurricane Halliburton. He is the Director of Military and Veteran Programs and Marketing Director at Your Next Mission and American Freedom Foundation. Mark, this has been great. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to perhaps doing another episode in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For everyone else, that wraps up another episode of the Cutlass Podcast. Take time, check out my website, www.cutlassleadership.com, and check out the full range of things we've got there that uh, provide you tools and resources, workshops, coaching, and a wide variety of things. So until next time, keep that leadership cutlass sharp and work to become that sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who makes a positive difference in your personal professional life.